Welcome to Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. Each episode, LRV Health's Keith Figlioli will talk to the healthcare insiders who are helping to fundamentally transform our healthcare industry. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. This is Tom Salemi, and I'm joined by our esteemed host, Keith Figlioli of LRV Health. Keith, how's it going today? Things are great, Tom. How about yourself? Doing great. I, I was pleased to be able to uh, to sit in on this interview that we'll have today with uh, Gary Bisbee of HMA. We uh, you you allowed me reason to go to the the Liberty Hotel in Boston, which I hadn't been to yet. A very cool hotel that was formerly the old jail, and uh, it was a really cool spot. So I was glad to have a reason to go down there to see the hotel, but also to listen to this conversation because I didn't know a lot or much at all about HMA. It's a really cool cool company. Can you tell us a bit about uh, what HMA does? Yeah, I mean, the Healthcare Management Academy has been around for a long period of time. Uh, Gary Bisbee was one of the original founders. And it's really, think of it as a broad-based collaborative platform by which they bring various stakeholders across health systems as well as across industry. And so he's done an incredible job of of kind of putting those two pieces and parts together and grabbing the topical um, areas of the day. And so um, I think we were uh, crashing one of their events at the Liberty Hotel, which is also attached to partners uh, to MGH, Mass General. Uh, and they were specifically, I think, bringing together a bunch of technical folks to talk about very topical piece around interoperability. And so they do that again and again around a lot of different areas of the country. And they've done it uh, incredibly well uh, where their network is, is really second to none in terms of the type of people they've brought together uh, through that type of activity. And as we'll hear in this interview, Gary has uh, an extensive healthcare uh, pedigree. I mean, he's uh, not only been on the board of Cerner since 1989, some, uh, something you mentioned in the interview, but uh, he had a particularly interesting thesis that I know you talked about in the interview. Yeah, it's funny. Like I, you know, I've known Gary on and off over the years. I've never actually spent a lot of time with him in person and then recently have been, including this uh, podcast interview. And his background is unbelievable. I mean... I had no idea he had been at Cerner on the board uh, through all that time uh, and was so close to them. But I think the other thing that was probably more telling and more interesting to me in the beginning was the fact that portions of his thesis when he got his PhD was the underpinning of our DRG system. I had no idea. And so that is just way cool. And uh, it was fun. <laughs> it was it was a lot of fun talking about that. It was a kind of a cool healthcare geek out moment. So uh, I was glad to be yeah, there for it. Yeah, I have it. to say I was totally geeking out. So I was into it. <laughs> awesome. Well, let's uh, let's let other people enjoy this conversation. Let's uh, now hear from Gary Bisbee of HMA. So uh, welcome, everybody. I'm sitting here with Gary Bisbee. Now the executive chairman right. of HMA, so yep. that has changed recently, so we can get into that a little bit. Okay. We're sitting in a lovely room uh, on the first day of spring in Boston, and so uh, we're, we're really excited to have a little discussion with you here today, Gary. Keith, good being with you. Great. I'm usually on your side of the table. I'm usually interviewing, so it'll be <laughs> interesting to see how this works. This is going to be fun yeah. because as I dove into your background, I've been looking forward to this discussion for about 30, 40 days since I did that work. Yeah, great. Um, but I always start these with just a quick background. You okay. know, as, as we were saying a little bit before we started recording, you know, we have some people in the audience that really know you, want okay. to understand you better. We have others that really just don't even understand sort of HMA or you or your background. So let's start there and okay. we'll be off. Um, Dad was a minister. 
uh, and uh, so I'm kind of interested in people and so on, and healthcare was always an option, um, and uh, got connected in several different ways. Ended up um, going to work at Northwestern uh, Medical Center, worked for three years, and said, wow, this is pretty cool. I like healthcare. Didn't really want to be a hospital administrator, so I went off to Wharton, got my MBA, finance and healthcare. At the time, most people that were interested in healthcare administration were getting an MHA or some kind of similar degree. I really saw it more as business, and I wanted to uh, get to Wharton. Then I realized I really needed to have a clinical degree if I was going to be in healthcare. So I went up to Yale, got a PhD in chronic disease epidemiology, uh, which gave me that clinical side. Um, probably from the audience standpoint, uh, my dissertation, PhD dissertation, was part of the development of DRGs. That really set the tone, data, finance, and I've really been pretty much around data and finance for the rest so of my career. So you weren't that ambitious that early then? <laughs> Just kept moving forward. <laughs> so what did that feel, I mean, if you were at your dissertation of DRGs and yep. you've been at this, I mean, you're at the core of what we tried to showcase with our platform and more importantly with this podcast, which is people have been on for a long time, seen yep. a lot of shocks to the system yep. here. What did that feel like back then? And then just to play it a little bit more into your background as you get into that, you know, Wall Street background, you've built a number of businesses. We'll get into yep. the, the latest one okay. that you're still involved with HMA. All of that background. How does that sort of translate to today? And how do you think about today and, and all the training that you very feels deliberately got? Yeah. It's slower than you kind of hope, you know, really. And uh, the good news is right now we're starting to realize uh, more about outcomes, more about production function. That was really the focus of my dissertation. Nobody knew back then what production function in healthcare was. Uh, but today it's more uh, common, I'd say. If you look at our CFO group, uh, we'll get to the academy in a minute, but you look at the CFO group, they're starting to think that way. Uh, so all, all told, I'd say uh, we've made tremendous progress the last 20, 25 years, and uh, it's been fun for me to be part of it. Absolutely. And, and so maybe we'll touch on HMA a little yep. bit and maybe take us from the beginning, sort of the thought of creating it as one of the co-founders okay. and then sort of how it's evolved and what yep. it's become and, and give people a flavor of that. Okay, so we started the Academy in 1998. Uh, the real um, consolidation wave in hospitals started in the early to mid-90s. And so there's roughly, at that, at that point, 5,000 community hospitals in the country. Uh, what ended up in, let's say, by the mid-90s is a hundred really large health systems. And the obvious conclusion at the point then was that none of the executives really had grown up in a health system or were trained in a health system. They'd all grown up in hospitals and were trained to lead hospitals. So we formed the academy to provide peer learning to the executives of these large health systems. Pretty simple idea. That's really what we're doing today, and we do it in several different ways. We built one part of our business around executive roles, CEO forum, CFO forum, CMO forum, and so there's a peer group that meets. We brought, um, we brought industry companies into this because we figured, you know, if you're a GE executive, a Phillips executive, you did know 
about leading a large company. And we thought that was important to kind of feather them into this group of health system executives. Uh, so basically, that's what we do. Now, we've spent a lot of time recently in the leadership development space. Um, we now uh, spend time in what they call thought leadership. So our members are coming to us and saying, look, how are you viewing the next five years or 10 years? Uh, and can you do research? Can you begin to pull together some relevant thinking so we can be better prepared to lead our systems? A lot of disruption, a lot of change mm -hmm. out there. So there's people saying, hey, help us out. So we do a fair amount of that as well. But really the company's based on convening and then all the other uh, services that these, uh, that these members want. Got it. And... So you said it was about 100. How big yep. is that group now if you had to span? So well, we've, think kept, about we've kept with the 100, but okay. that 100 now generates about 65% of all hospital revenues wow. and roughly 65% of all inpatients and, and outpatients. Wow. So it's a pretty compelling group. And as the consolidation continues, we expect to see that broader, percentage increase. Broader market yep. share. Yep. And so do you think that's a miss? It's interesting. What you, I was thinking about what you said there in the beginning. I feel like there's a misperception in the industry, especially for a lot of newcomers that come into it, that this used to be a lot of standalone hospitals yep. and yep. a lot of standalone yep. thinking. And some people have a hard time understanding even how buying patterns take place still siloed. Yep. Yep. Do you think a lot of people don't understand the yep. sort of evolution yep. of healthcare in our country? They, uh, they don't. And a lot of our health system executives don't really understand. We started the company 21 years ago. They didn't identify themselves really as a large health system leader. They identified themselves a hospital leader. Got it. And we had to actually create the brand of a large health system. We typically call them leading health systems. Right. Uh, and it took five, ten years for them to begin to identify themselves as a peer group of large health systems. Right. And these places are large. Uh, Thirty-four of our hundred would be listed on the Fortune 500 if they were listed companies. Right. Uh, the largest now uh, common spirit is about 30 billion, the largest nonprofit. HCA is probably 45 billion, Kaiser is probably 90 billion, but um, so they're large, large corporate entities. Right. What, what do these systems become? So you think about that origin and you think about, you know, the flippant people that, that sort of poo-poo, if you will, Hospitals or health systems yep. sit in the, and say, "Hey, the boardroom. Hey, just fill the beds." Yeah. But but end of the day, there's some truth to that. But other side of it, and Penny went into this in a lot of detail. They're trying to figure out what the next stage of these platforms become, yep. and also doing the right thing. Mm. And so, how do you think sort of the health system evolves over the next mm -hmm. number of years, given mm -hmm. what's going on? Well, let me weave into this the role of the board of directors because sure. it's directly applicable here. And historically, boards weren't particularly strong, local, um, and really running a hospital, you know, wasn't that challenging, relatively speaking. Now, with these huge systems, multi-state systems, most of them are the largest uh, private employer in their state, certainly in their region. Uh, the risks, the enterprise risk of these places has skyrocketed. Cybersecurity, employing physicians, you know, risk-based payment, all of that. So what happens is the board of directors now is much more active. Uh, the CEOs like Penny are recruiting a whole new wave of directors. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and the coming in proposition is do the right thing for the community, but you know, no, no mission, no margin, no margin, no mission. Right. So they have to be able to generate uh, uh, revenue margin, and they are more and more as an organized business to deliver the right kind of care to their communities. So where is this going? You know, you can see government payment uh, right now. Roughly 60% of all revenues come from governments uh, these days because of Medicaid expansion and the role the federal government pays there. Most of that 60% is federal government. Yep. Uh, and we half of the baby boomers aren't yet 65. Uh, so we're going to see that 60, 65% is going to be 70, 75% in the next 10 years, kind of the time frame you talked about. The larger that percentage is, the more pressure there's going to be um, on the margins of these places, the yeah. harder it is going to be to do the quote-unquote right thing for the community. Yeah. And it's going to test the leadership and test the boards of directors to make some decisions that probably won't be popular, uh, can't do any, everything for everybody like they've done in the past. Right. Uh, so they're going to have to say, you know, we're going to be good at pediatrics, but not neurosurgery, you know, whatever it is. Right. So more, so you see potentially more specialization, yeah. um, and so. you know if you if, see if this is fair, but you know if you think about where healthcare started in this country and how everything kind of bubbled up to a sort of independent hospital, and each had its pieces and parts. Now you've got these large aggregated integrated systems. The question I keep asking is, how far is that going to go, and how far are those alternative revenue streams potentially going to go as well mm -hmm. to cover what is a pretty you know, the thing that you laid out with just yep. pure demographics, pure set of issues on the cost infrastructure side that's mm -hmm. that's acute. Most mm -hmm. the average health system, as you know better than anybody else, is mm -hmm. taking out at least twenty five to seventy five to sometimes a hundred million a year mm -hmm. in operating costs. Yeah, and sometimes more than that. You actually asked the question earlier. I didn't I didn't answer, and that is as these systems grow and as the cost pressures increase, are they becoming more corporate, more command and control? Yes. Uh, and the sophistication of supply chain these days is 100% greater than it used to be. Um, lots of times, supply chain leader will come in from outside healthcare, and so they are all on costs at our CEO meeting. Everybody first priority cost, and then we'll work on on growth. Um, that's going to have to continue. I think the operating margin on our largest 100. Uh, health systems is now below 4%, right. and it's been tracking down. Um, so uh, I think that um, the way that you can continue, the way the health system can continue to do the right thing for the community uh, is to be financially viable, right. which is going to be tougher and tougher. So that is a con considered um, emphasis these days of all the, all the health systems. And it's interesting on the cost side that we're talking about and kind of intersect that with the innovation, a lot of stuff that both yeah. of us see in the market a lot. I'm still pretty amazed that there's not enough innovation on the cost equation side mm -hmm. of anything. I mean, mm -hmm. as, as you know, mm -hmm. most most systems today can really deal with two things, staff mm -hmm. and stuff. Mm -hmm. And those are the levers they can really drive mm -hmm. to take costs out. But we don't see enough things that potentially are either at scale or could be at scale mm -hmm 
on the cost side of new entrants coming into the mm-hmm. marketplace. And I'm just curious, as this gets more and more acute, if you think there's going to be more players kind of coming at that side of the angle, rather than what we all see is a ton of clinical delivery, yeah. a ton of you know AI and everything else yeah. going at the clinical side of the equation. What I, what I think there is they have, these large systems have done a good job on the administrative side. Uh, they will accelerate cost savings there. AI is going to be helpful substantially in that regard. But you can't cut your way to prosperity, obviously. So um, how do you grow uh, your product, which fundamentally is resides in the inpatient side? Half of the revenue of the large systems now, acute care, half ambulatory care. But yeah. it's that half acute care that's been providing the margin for them. And my guess is what you're going to see over the next 10 years is going to be a substantial restructuring of the clinical enterprise, how they deliver care. Now, genetics uh, and other kinds of kind of clinic, clinical accelerators is going to help them focus, right. uh, which I think is going to be key. But uh, 10 years from now, we're not going to recognize the way that uh, the clinical enterprise is structured in, in these health systems. And is, it is value and value-based care sort of a given to be able to do that? Yeah. That's a tough one. Uh, you know, it was, it was value-based care um, was five, six, seven, eight years ago, kind of the ticket to salvation, so to speak. Uh, What we've seen, because we collect quarterly data on this, is that it really has tailed off. And now we've seen government, uh, federal government is trying to drive it to some degree. States through uh, managed Medicaid uh, are trying to drive value-based care, but it's more networks than it is clinical networks, probably, than it is anything. Uh, Corporate health benefits have not gone on that bandwagon. We've got 160 million people these days covered under corporate health benefits, half the population. And uh, we, the government is looking at, the federal government's looking at ACOs, which is one of the things they really thought were going to change. ACOs haven't really been uh, successful at what they wanted. And so I think there's a model uh, that does tie hospitals um, and doctors and patients together, and we can call it value-based care now. My guess is it's going to be an evolution over the next right. 10 years, and it won't be exactly what we're thinking of. But my guess is the consumers, uh, we wrote about this several years ago in a book called N Equals One, but the consumers ultimately are going to drive change in the system. Uh, consumers have more information today. iPhone is 11 years old. The apps are 10 years old. Yeah. I mean, we don't have a lot of experience with consumers with the kind of information that they have, right. uh, to say nothing of the technology, telehealth, yeah. and so on. So I think consumers drive it. Consumers don't want to go in a hospital. Consumers yeah. want convenience, yeah. and uh, it's going to just continue to change. But that works back, in my mind, to the whole clinical restructuring, right. uh, which is ultimately going to be the way I think that we are able to sustain the role of the hospital given what's coming down uh, with the demographics in the federal right. government. So we so we spent a little time with Don Berwick and he was talking about Medicare for All and yep. hot, hot topic yep. know, as we go into 2020. Yep. But if you peel back and you 
think about while we've reduced spending, we're still above inflation. We're still on yep. pace 2026, 2027 20, yep. to get to yep. 20% of GDP. Yep. Some form of capitated payment is going to be needed on some of this. So, you know, I don't know if any other thoughts on that, but I yeah. ask everybody that same question, which is where is pace on all this? Because the, the single biggest driver on a lot of these businesses and a lot of these sort of footprint expansions um, and some of the reason why some of these systems are scaling the way they are is thinking that's just inevitable. And, you know, we've had a little bit of blowback recently from some of the health system side. Now the payers are starting to combine more, given what we just saw with the two yep. blues. But the health systems actually slow down their scaling metaphor because maybe they think VBC is slowing down. But, you know, it seems like you're also, your data is supporting that as well. Yeah, I think so. I mean, if you look at um, 60% of the revenues of the health system comes from governments, yep. it sounds like a utility, public yep. utility to me. Yep. And uh, if... The rates are continuing to be set by the governments. Then, how does the health system respond to that? Um, there's, I don't see any way out of having to to restructure um, care yeah. uh, the way it's currently delivered. And you know, we've talked a little bit about innovation, but yeah. really, applying innovation to the way that they practice medicine is. Uh, Infant, infant stages. Right. It's going to grow. Yeah. And uh, I think that's ultimately going to be what the consumer wants. Yeah. It's what the only way the government can continue to fund this. So. Got it. Well, let's flip that around. Let's talk, maybe switch gears a little bit and talk about innovation. And until I did more and more research on you, I actually didn't realize that you've been on the board of Cerner since yeah. 1989. Yeah. So you, nobody better than to get a point of view on sort of the innovation, the technology uprising. Yeah. Uh, than yourself. Um, just curious sort of how you're thinking about sort of the electronic health record market yeah. now and the, you know, the sub-markets that fit around that. Took Cerner Public in 85, 1985 and have been on their board uh, since 89, uh, which has been a terrific opportunity uh, to You've see. You've seen a lot. Yeah, see how <laughs> EHRs. Uh, have grown, and so when the when I think it was 2012 that the High Tech Act uh, was established, we spent 35, 40 billion dollars to digitize medical care, primarily. Um, really had to be done, and we're now through that. Uh, the question is, of course, uh, what happened to interoperability, <laughs> and and that was the one thing that they missed back in 2012. They didn't require that, which right. they should have, and, and I think just about everybody's opinion. Uh, so now we've got to go back and kind of retrograde or retrofit what we've got, move down the interoperability right. path. CMS is on it. Um, uh, I think Kaiser Family Foundation just came out with a report that talked kind of damn the actually. whole industry, yeah, right? It's, it's uh, not that pretty. Yeah, but the point being is that we have digitized medical care. That really had to be done. What that is going to allow is a variety of technologies uh, that are called basically analytics that are going to use this data. And so I think that we can look for, whether it's restructuring clinical care I'm talking about, whether it's right. the administrative side of it. So I think that's the positive. Um, you know, if you look at Cerner, look at Epic, um, both of them had 
entrepreneurs of some consequence has been just really interesting to track Neil Patterson at Cerner and, and Junie, uh, Judy at yep. Epic. I mean, they're both <laughs> really, really incredible people, yep. right? Um, but it's time to move on and it's time to really think about, okay, how are we going to use this enormous trove of data generated by these EHRs to be useful both for the clinical del delivery side and the administrative side, and we're just early, 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 early stages there. I think that's something that people miss. I mean, again, you know, I've been in electronic health record space as well since um, 03. I should be asking you these no, questions because you're, no, the, you're the expert no, here. No, not at all, but I've been around a little bit like yourself on this, this side. And, and I think that's what people miss. I mean, yes, it's been, you know, as many years as we're talking about, yeah. but it's still very early. Very early. Mm -hmm. And, you know, given how late we were, I mean, it's, it feels like just listening to you that you're absolutely a proponent of what happened. I know Cerner was in the middle of that, too, yep. back in the yep. day. Yep. Absolutely were a proponent of doing MU <clears throat> and spending the money because mm -hmm. we had to get there. Mm -hmm. We had to go from, you know, mm -hmm. where we were from adoption mm -hmm. to where we are today. Mm -hmm. But now we got to move forward and maybe to be more pointed on the question around interoperability because I've been, that's sort of been a bee in my bonnet for a long time, going back to ONC's uh, standards committee. Right. Um, your view on what CMS and ONC just dropped at HIMSS, and do you think that's going to change the demeanor? And I'm not trying to get you to say anything from the board level of Cerner. I'm trying yeah. to get you to say it from your point of view, yeah. given how long you've been in the industry. Yeah. Do you think that's going to change the demeanor of the electronic health record vendors and the other vendors to really think, like, this is the world we are going to live in. Mm -hmm. We are going to have to be open mm -hmm. platforms, safe mm -hmm. and secure, but mm -hmm. we're going to have to be open mm -hmm. platforms. Yeah, well, I think so. And, look, Cerner has been supportive of interoperability, you know, from the beginning, been right. active in that regard. Yeah. But uh, the reality is uh, we really need to pick it up there yeah. every, across the board. And... If you go back to my theory that consumers ultimately are going to drive yep. uh, the changes in this field, I mean, consumers are fed up with right. the fact I don't have a yep. record of my own activities. Uh, you know, you can't really figure out where you stand. And so that's got to change. Yep. And Cerner has to do it, and Epic has to do it, and everybody's going to have to do it. Probably, you know, it took the government... Uh, 35 billion or 40 billion to digitize medical care. It's probably going to take the government, you know, to crack down and right. say, okay, it's time to do this. Right. So, and I think they've laid that blueprint. And they I, have. And, I, and you know, having relationships with most of the vendors, the HR vendors, I think everybody is there. I actually, I would, I, I actually think we are at that tipping point. Mm. But to your point, it's going to take some time. Yeah. Um, but I think to the entrepreneurs and the innovators and the in the amount of money, as you know, we've poured into digital health. I think that will start paying off in the balance of the next decade or two. I keep saying 20 years and people keep frowning at me, but yeah, I think it, you're right. it feels you're right that way. That. I mean, you're right on that. But So we've got, what, 18% of the gross domestic product right now in healthcare, yeah. uh, 35 or $40 billion over, what, 10 or 15 years to digitize it? I mean, that is right. fast. Right. And so it's just going to take a while for that to settle down. Yeah. Doesn't mean I'm happy with it. It just means I'm... <laughs> making your point that it's another yeah. 10 or 20 years before this really focuses. I think you tend to do things when you have to do it for some specific reason. Costs are a great, great reason. Um, uh, I think delivering high-quality care is another good reason. Certainly 
Dr. Berwick, I'm sure, was talking about that. Uh, but the point of the matter is, I think increasingly costs are going to drive the health systems, the providers, uh, hopefully the payers will come along on that, the drug companies and so on, but it's going to drive the providers to focus their effort on providing the right kind of care. Got and it. They've, they've just got to move down interoperability path to get that done. And so one last last Cerner question, just because yep. it's, it's fairly recent news. Um, back in early 2018, you, you were obviously on the board and appointed Brent as the new CEO. What What's your view of him coming in? And, you know, I think there's been some press on this, and he's talked a little bit about it, but, you know, where's Cerner going? I mean, yeah. Cerner to me feels like they are in the middle of a transformation, mm-hmm. and they are trying to th- almost think of themselves more as a healthcare services yeah. broader platform. Yeah. But I'd be curious how you think, you know, from the board, yeah. from Brent's point of view, where, where, where they're thinking. So Neil Patterson, uh, found, co-founder of the company, was yeah. the CEO of the company from the beginning um, and was... Uh, known as a visionary, did have a plan for going forward, um, and grew the company from nothing to roughly $5 billion in sales. So pretty good effort there. So Neil has unfortunately passed away, put the board in a situation, how do you replace (laughs) the founder uh, of 30-some years that had been, uh, I think, by all accounts, done a great job. Well, so you really had to look and say, okay, so what could we be doing better? We needed a professional manager, uh, and uh, as good as Neil was, Neil thought like an entrepreneur, and God bless him. I mean, that's what made that company great. We felt we needed a professional manager. Brent fit that model, Ben at GE, Ben at Phillips, and uh, Hill Rahm, and so on. We also thought that, by we, I'm talking about the board, Mm -hmm. thought Cerner really had never focused on branding or positioning itself in the marketplace. And these days, that's necessary. I think Judy done a terrific job of that at Epic. Uh, Cerner had not, and so we wanted somebody who really was professional, marketer, could think about it that way. Brent clearly fit that. Uh, so combination professional leader, professional manager, and somebody who really knew marketing, uh, that was part of our calculus as a board as to yeah. who we wanted to, to, uh, uh, to lead the company. Now... Where Cerner is, uh, meaningful use dollars aren't there. Uh, you know, we're we're needing to go forward. We're needing to think about uh, what is the driver for this company. No question, we're in services much more than ever. Yeah. Uh, whether it's hosting or other kinds of services, and certainly I think Cerner will continue to play that role. Um, Population health, a little bit different than value-based, if you want to look at it that way. But there is some accountable to the community through population health. And I think that that'll be a big driver for Cerner going forward the next five or ten years. Um, Revenue cycle, uh, which gets back to our point about the costs, uh, that's more of the revenue side. But financially speaking, is going to be vitally important right. uh, and use new technologies. So I think Cerner will spend more time there. So if you think about those uh, revenue cycle, pop health, AI, other kinds of analytics, clearly more services oriented, right. and I think it's fairly obvious that that's where Cerner has to go. I don't think that's such a wildly creative yeah, right. idea. 
And if you if you broaden that lens as as we get kind of the close of this, and you start thinking about all the emerging players coming in. So mm-hmm. now, you know, Cerner's done a great job of getting bigger and broadening about what they do. Epic's done a great job mm-hmm. doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a couple of other players have done that. But now you're starting to get the Googles, the you know, when we get close yep. to 20% GDP, everybody's looking. Yep, everybody wants And so Amazon, it. everybody. Yep. D- does that change the game for players like Cerner and others? And then what does that mean ultimately yeah. to the industry in, say, 10 years? I think it changes the game for everybody, doesn't right. it? And yeah. uh, it's just disruptive, and yeah. there's all kinds of new technology and so on. But if you think about Google, Amazon, and the cloud, so what is the cloud going to do to Cerner and Epic, right. given that they've got these legacy systems? And it's going to require them to change and to upgrade. Right. Uh, I think they're both in the process of doing that. Yeah. Uh, but that's the future for EHRs, and maybe the salvation ultimately is to get to the cloud. Right. Yeah. And um, and it, so I, I won't I won't I won't lead the witness, yeah. but think about the amount of money we've also poured into the digital health space for yep. the last seven to ten years yep. or so, and it keeps going up. Yep. Um, and I keep I brought this up a couple of times, but I keep at my desk sort of a plotted graph of monthly labor trends. And then the amount of money you're putting in digital health, mm-hmm. somewhere those lines have to cross, <laughs> yeah. right, to make mm-hmm. an ROI statement, mm-hmm. which we still haven't made, which ironically we still have not made in digital Correct. health Correct. Um, investments. But do you think we're headed towards a bubble in this area? Do you think we're just going to even it out and it's going to plane out? I'm curious, since you've been around for a while on this, you know, what you think. If we are going to... Um Restructure clinically, if we're going to use the most advanced technology to um, approach the administrative side of what we do, uh, if we want to get consumers more timely information, then uh, I think we're really on the early stages of digitization. Uh, You think of the, you know, we've got a session this afternoon uh, in our innovation summit on the application of genetic screening. Uh, to uh, healthcare, and gosh, uh, talk about early stages, right? But uh, that could change the world, really, in terms of the clinical uh, delivery of care. I think that we're on such early stages relative to the application of uh, digitization in this field. I just don't, I don't see it tailing off. I think it just has to, it has to grow. Yeah. I'm of the same opinion for what it's worth, and yep. I, I really do think we're in the second or third inning yep. and, and planning out here. Definitely early Now, the innings. dollars may subside, and the valuations hopefully subside because they've been crazy. Um, but it's been an interesting watch. Well, I, thank you for your time. Yep. This has been terrific. And, fun to and be here. It was as fun as I thought it was going to be, good. and uh, look forward to uh, getting this published and getting people to hear it. Sounds good. Thanks, right. Keith. Thank Enjoyed you. Enjoyed it, man. All right. Take care. Before I let you go, I'd like to ask you three simple favors. Number one, tell your friends about this podcast. If you enjoyed Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders, let them know via text, via tweet, via LinkedIn. If you use any of those social media things, please do connect to me as well. I'm at MedTechTom. You can also find Keith Figlioli on Twitter. He is at Keith Figlioli. Of course, we're both on LinkedIn. You can email me directly. Let me know how you're enjoying the podcast. My email is tom at healthag.com. That is the word health, followed by letters E-G-Y dot com. Finally, just subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss a future episode. Tune in next time. We'll have another great tale of innovation for you on Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders.